Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Gianna Melillo, Associate Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. Since 1999, nearly 841,000 Americans have died of drug overdoses, according to data from the CDC, while opioids serve as the main driver of these deaths. Synthetic opioids account for 73% of opioid-involved overdose deaths. The COVID-19 pandemic exacerbated the opioid epidemic as individuals encountered disruptions in routine treatment alongside steep increases in depression and anxiety rates. One group of individuals susceptible to opioid use disorder are those with chronic non-cancer pain. Although interventions such as full mu agonist chronic opioid analgesic therapy, or COAT, cessation do exist for this population, data show this practice can actually impede vocational and social return to function and to increase length of disability. In a study published in the October issue of the American Journal of Managed Care, Dr. Marcelina Jasmine Silva and colleagues outlined outcomes from the Focus on Opioid Transitions, or Footsteps program, which was created to help patients with chronic non-cancer pain cease coat reliance. On this episode of Managed Carecast, Silva discusses the findings of this pilot study and elaborates on the success of combining interventions that are typically applied individually. Welcome to Managed Carecast, Dr. Silva. To begin, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the work you do? Hi, my name is Dr. Marcelina Jasmine Silva. Um, I am the creator and medical director of a program called the Focus on Opioid Transitions Program, which is something we refer to as footsteps. Um, I am board certified in family medicine, pain medicine, and um, addiction medicine. Why did you decide to study prolonged cessation of chronic opioid analgesic therapy among those with chronic non-cancer pain? Well, I came to medicine um, primarily to be an advocate and a resource for, for individuals and community empowerment. And I don't think that's necessarily unique, but I came from a really different background than most physicians and most researchers. I studied liberal arts and I had an emphasis in community advocacy. And I spent my years before medicine and before medical school being a public school teacher and also being a geriatric social worker. And so um, I feel like all of these experiences working within the community and being parts of people's lives in all of these unique ways has really given me a unique perspective on identifying um, real gaps in patient need um, and giving me some uh, additional skill sets to be able to help facilitate and mediate these gaps. So I've always gravitated towards the populations where I felt I could be of the most use to mediate like a perceived disconnect. And in my experience, Patients with um, chronic non-cancer pain, especially the ones who utilize chronic opioid analgesic therapy, which I refer to as COAT in this study, um, are frequently medically disenfranchised from the medical community because their healthcare agenda can really seem at odds from that of their clinicians. And there can be a lot of disconnect, miscommunication, mistrust, and disappointment with the therapeutic relationship on behalf of really all sides of this issue, not just between patients and clinicians, but also um, healthcare entities, payors, um, you know, healthcare, um, just overall institutions. And so that's been an area that I've been really motivated to try to help um, bridge the gap. Um, I've been really inspired to try to find some solutions that will bring increased satisfaction to all parties involved. Um, and I think one of the things that really 
drew me to work with investigating and, and working around chronic opioid analgesic therapy is that after my family medicine residency, um, I did my, um, I did my interventional spinal fellowship. And I should say that my family medicine residency, it was a really good residency. I mean, it was one of, it's been named as one of the top 10 residencies in the country by the US News and World Report several times. And it was when I was in residency there too, but um, I would still get a lot of referrals um, for refractory and complicated um, pain presentations. And it was there that I realized, you know, if the best doctors in the country can't figure this, this out very well, can't really bring about good patient and healthcare satisfaction. Probably it's because we don't have a very good treatment paradigm available. Um, so I went into my interventional spinal fellowship trying to improve my knowledge of chronic pain. And what I found it was that despite the fact that I could provide people with like revolutionary technology, like high frequency spinal cord stimulators and access to all sorts of resources, I found that even when I improved their pain levels, and even when I improved their function levels, I frequently could not impart a sense of satisfaction in many of my patients. Um, and many of them still relied very heavily upon chronic opioid analgesic therapy, despite improvement in pain and function, because they, um, they just couldn't, they couldn't function without their medications. They would say things like, you know, my medications don't get me high. There's no reward of euphoria, reward of euphoria here. And they don't do a great job of controlling my pain. But after all of these years of using them, if I don't have my medications, I can't feel normal anymore. And, and normal was a word that came up over and over and over again. So there's people feeling like if they stop their opioids, um, then they really suffer emotionally and physically. And they already felt like they were people who had a disproportionate amount of suffering anyway, because they suffer from chronic pain. So you can imagine um, how frustrating, how fascinating, but how frustrating that is as a physician. Um, and so then I really started to devote my time and attention to try to figure out well, what, what can I do to help, to help them um, avoid some exposure to um, chronic opioid analgesics and, and help them improve a feeling of satisfaction in their quality of life and help me feel like I've got an improved sense of satisfaction when I can offer patients. And that was sort of the, the birth of this research. Would you be able to elaborate on what coat therapy is and why it is ineffective in this patient population or doesn't have the best outcomes as you kind of touched on? Yeah. Um, so coat is chronic opioid analgesic therapy. And in the, the context of this study, I'm using it to describe full mu agonist chronic opioid analgesic therapy. So um, first I want to say that there, there certainly are people who have chronic pain, they use opioids and they're able to, um, you know, function in the way that they want and, and meet all of the goals that they feel make their life feel meaningful. But those aren't the people who are coming to me. Um, I, my referrals are people from a statewide large private practice who are suffering from chronic pain, who had access to all of the interventions, all the therapies, all the medications, all the surgeries, and they still were using these medications and still feeling very dissatisfied with their level of pain control or their level of function. So, um, so, so I want to just clarify that because this discussion about using opioids or not using opioids, it's such a big discussion and it's way, way bigger than the context of this podcast or even this study. Um, but, but that's the population that what I would, you know, that I set out to really 
treat um, through my program and, and, and to document the treating of in the study. Um, but the reason that um, I would argue it, it wasn't working well for my patients, that chronic opioid analgesic therapy wasn't working well for my parents and their patients, and the reason that it's um, not been working well for many people in America is because of the side effect panel. So the, the profile of side effects that well, let me back up. A full mu agonist opioid is a class of an opioid that interacts with a receptor called the mu receptor in the human body. Human body has a bunch of different types of opioid receptors and the mu receptor is just one of them and they exist in our body so that we can um, connect our important um, opioid-like hormones that naturally exist, like endorphins, to those receptors and have an opioid-like effect in our body when we need to stimulate our own natural form of pain control or our own natural form of, um, of motivation to accomplish a task, especially a task that's challenging. So the mu receptor ends up being the main target of most of the classic analgesic opioid medications. Um, and these are the classic analgesic opioid medications we call full mu agonists. And these are the ones that most of us have heard of before, hydrocodone, oxycodone, fentanyl, heroin. These are full mu agonist opioids. And they connect with the mu opioid receptor. They impart pain control or analgesia. And most of them also impart um, euphoria, um, some foggy headedness, constipation, dry mouth, and most concerningly, the potential for respiratory depression and um, overdose-related death. So most of the controversy around using full muse agonist opioids in this country um, uh, circulates around the potential and the risk for opioid-related overdose death um, because of the stimulation of the mu agonist opioid receptor. So, you know, so not only do we have all of these immediate short-term effects that range from um, uncomfortable to lethal, we also have the long-term effects of exposure to full mu agonist therapies, which are sort of insidious and people don't start to notice these effects until after they've been on their opioid therapy for months or years. So it turns out that chronic exposure to full mu agonist opioid therapy um, causes what we call hypogonadism, which means a decrease in the sex hormones. And so we'll, we'll frequently see this appear most markedly in men who will show up with very low testosterone levels, um, decreased muscle mass index. So they have larger, um, larger fat depositions, and then they have more estrogen in their body. And then they're feeling fatigued, depressed, higher metabolic syndromes, higher blood pressure, increased cardiovascular disease. I mean, it's not it's not no thing, you know, to have, um, to have off balance hormones and to have low um, testosterone. Um, we'll also see an effect on the immune system. So prolonged exposure to full mu agonist opioids can cause what we call a relative immunodeficiency, meaning our T cells and some of our B cells don't do as good of a job of recognizing invader substances or even mutating cells within our body. So people who are using opioid analgesic therapy chronically, full mu agonist opioid analgesic therapy chronically, will have higher rates of cancer and higher rates of infection. Um, and then finally, another major long-term side effect of using opioid analgesic therapy is something called um, hyperalgesia, which some people experience, which is just truly the meanest of all the side effects where there's sort of a a metaphorical rewiring that happens within the nervous system where people start to feel, um, perceive 
pain in areas where they haven't been injured before, or um, will have a harder time recovery or have a stronger pain reaction to something that maybe a stimuli that maybe wouldn't have caused pain before. You know, for example, uh, you just bump into a table and you think nothing of it, you know, as you walk into a table, but someone with hyperalgesia will bump into a table and it will be incredibly painful and maybe even decrease their function and cause you know, increased bed rest for a day um, or, or more. Um, so, so you can imagine all of these things combining can really decrease a person's quality of life. Um, whether or not the medication is providing analgesia, there's a heavy side effect burden of full new agonist opioids. And so getting into your study specifically, how is the focus on opioid transitions or footsteps program developed? And how did you carry out your pilot study? So I was inspired to create um, the treatment model of the focus on opioid transitions program um, based on what I understood about the opposite dynamics of what we know worsens chronic disease. And I, I lump chronic pain into a type of chronic disease. So there are many studies and, and most foundationally the, the adverse childhood experience studies, which are pivotal in illuminating the power of chronic toxic stress and creating and sustaining chronic illness. So I set about to create a curriculum that was robust um, with the intention of helping to improve patient resiliency to chronic toxic stress um, using an evidence-based multidisciplinary approach um, that would um, impart on my patients the skills to self-administer these active treatments at home, um, things like um, group CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy to create and utilize and practice coping skills, mindfulness activities, gentle motion activities, um, acupuncture and self-acupressure massage. Um, and then we also individually worked on medication transition plans that fit within their goals. And remember, this is all, the whole program was voluntary. So, um, so a lot of what, what we did was very goal-directed for each individual patient using the same types of evidence-based actively administered tools. What were the main findings of your study? Did any surprise you? The main findings of this study um, were specifically overall success versus not success of ceasing reliance on chronic opioid analgesic therapy in the setting of chronic non-cancer pain, and then um, how well those results uh, withstood follow-up of extended look back of up to 24 months. So based on our our methods of utilizing the California um, Prescription Drug Monitoring Program and also the, the EHR medical records of these patients, we do not believe anybody was lost to follow up. So to have up to 24 months of data with nobody potentially lost to follow up is pretty unprecedented in the literature about how, you know, how effective these interventions can be to help people cease the use of chronic opioid analgesic therapy. And again, highlighting this, this was a voluntary program. And so people were motivated. They had the goal to be off chronic opioid analgesic therapy, um, despite the fact that they had tried multiple different ways to do it in the past. And those ways had all failed them from weaning to other medications, to other types of programming, et cetera. So, um, so what was astounding to me was our success rate, number one, and then the prolonged success rate. 
So 24 months was the maximum period available for the look back between the program's inception and the date of our study. And we, we uh, collected multiple measures within the study and there were too many to publish in this paper and some are still being kind of collated. So there's some other publications. One has come out in the American Journal, um, excuse me, in the, um, the Journal of Pain Medicine um, about some of the patient reported assessments and their subjective experiences. The main measures of this, this article for the American Journal of Managed Care was to show success versus um, failure and the amount of sustained success. And these patients all had the option and the opportunity to return to their prior coat regimen at any time during their 10-week their program and after graduation. So the fact that 90% graduated without utilizing chronic opioid analgesic therapy anymore and that 97% of them maintained that cessation over the course of 24 months voluntarily is, for me as a clinician, the biggest patient endorsement I can think of um, when I'm trying to affect positive change in a person's life. I know this was just a pilot study, but would you say findings are generalizable? I hope so. And I think that was one of the weaknesses of this being a pilot study. There's a lot of demographic information that we were not able to collect. But one of the things that that I thought was an endorsement for generalizability was the fact that the morphine equivalents of our study participants ranged all the way up to 600 morphine equivalents, which is a significant amount of morphine equivalents. Um, the, the mean morphine equivalent was 60, which is still a significant amount of morphine equivalents, but it, it does bode well that we had participants using a high amount of morphine equivalents coming in and being successful with this protocol. Um, the other thing that I think helps make this seem potentially generalizable is the fact that we took all comers for insurance payer types, which, you know, it's, it's hard to really parse out what that means, but as a clinician, especially a clinician who came from a primary care background, a lot of times it can be really hard to, um, to assess whether or not an intervention would be helpful for your patient because your patient simply doesn't have access to them. So in this study, we had patients who had Medi-Cal, which is the California version of Medicaid, patients with Medicare, patients who had workers' compensation, patients who had no insurance at all, and the successes were, were the same across the board. And while we can't infer all socioeconomic backgrounds from that information, it is a promising data point um, that different, that patients coming out of different resource access um, communities and, and also patients who are coming from different medical um, paradigms all had similar types of success. What are the next steps for this research? And do you have any plans as to how these findings could be translated into clinical care? For next steps, you know, I'm, I'm just a clinician and a pragmatist first and foremost. So my next steps are to try to share the results that we came across and the evidence that, you know, inspired them to be brought forth. My, my real goal is to align stakeholders. You know, the usual paradigm of medical care is to string along and piecemeal out different parts of treatment in the hope that people won't need more as if using more medical care would be wasteful. And in this particular setting, it's unfortunate, you know, this, this approach is unfortunate because not only are these supportive services and multidisciplinary services valuable for the patient, but as I pointed out in the introduction of the study, and it's been pointed out several times and, and very well pointed out in the AJMC article, the supplement deaths, dollars, and diverted resources, 
these entities that are trying to conserve money by withholding different types of treatment actually end up spending much more money overall per patient by trying to avoid the very reasonable costs of early evidence-based supportive types of multidisciplinary care. So, so my next my next steps are really to try to, to engage in stakeholder alignment across all entities. Um, and, and what I'd like to see come out of that is some more clinical um, support in, in the form of better reimbursement for this type of approach. Because I think overall, this will be a much more satisfactory approach for everyone involved. You know, patients are satisfied. Clinicians feel like they're providing good care. And I think in the long run, it can be cost-saving as well to larger healthcare entities. In your opinion, will the worsening of the opioid crisis by the COVID pandemic drive the need for or implementation of programs similar to footsteps? Uh, Yeah, you know, I I wrote about this very thing in another AJMC article earlier in the pandemic. Um, And the the pandemic and, you know, necessary social distancing, not to mention just the objective life stressors of these last couple of years, have really been hotbeds for the types of chronic toxic stress and, um, and also, um, you know, factors that have have pushed people away from or separated people from therapeutic um, types of self-care. And so, and we've seen, you know, we've seen the results of of overdose related deaths um, in in all, all things related to opioids being just exponentially increased since the beginning of the pandemic over the trajectory that was already increasing at an alarming rate. So yes, I do think that implementation of programs like this, similar to footsteps, could be very helpful um, because of the worsening of the opioid crisis due to COVID-19. It also is challenging to to perform a program or to provide a program like this because footsteps was an in-person group program. Uh, and that's something that's becoming more and more difficult to be able to safely provide for patients, especially if you think about opioid um, patients who utilize chronic opioid analgesic therapies being um, immunosuppressed. So they specifically are vulnerable to spending time together in groups of people in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, what I'm hopeful for, and I mean, there's some evidence for this so far, is that there have been some, some really wonderful breakthroughs in terms of technology and healthcare delivery both in terms of the technology itself and then also the reimbursement uh, of that technology so that patients, that providers can afford to provide that type of delivery system uh, to provide more remote types of medicine, connect people without actually being in the same room. And, and that will also be sort of a new paradigm of especially emo- emotional support, which is part of what we were able to provide, I believe, in Footsteps. Um, and that is delivered differently when you deliver it um, you know, tell electronically, uh, but I am hopeful that one of the silver linings of this pandemic will be increased access and increased ingenuity in the ways in which we deliver healthcare. Well, those are all the questions I had prepared, but is there anything we didn't touch on you'd like to include, or do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to share? In terms of um, the detriments of, of, of chronic opioid analgesic therapy, both short-term and long-term, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we could use the information that we know about opioids and the mu receptor stimulation to only turn on parts of that receptor so that we could get pain control, but not get all of the, the dangerous and also inconvenient side effects. And it turns out that we've identified um, an opioid medication 
that we call a partial mu receptor agonist, and, and this is uh, buprenorphine, and we did use this in our study. And buprenorphine, like I said, is a partial mu receptor agonist. And when I say partial, you know, a lot of people will picture kind of like a light dimmer switch, which provides more and less potency, no matter how, you know, while you turn it up or turn it down. But that's not what buprenorphine is like. Buprenorphine is a partial mu agonist in the sense that some parts of the mu receptor switchboard get turned on and some parts don't. And so in the case of buprenorphine specifically, it is uh, associated with, with potent analgesia, which is wonderful. That's the reason most people are using chronic opioid analgesic therapy, but it's not associated with the same risk for respiratory depression and overdose. And it does not seem to confer the same risks of long-term hypogonadism and immunodeficiency or hyperalgesia. And so in terms of a comparison between buprenorphine and a typical full mu agonist um, opioid, this is a far superior drug in terms of safety, and it has the power to provide significant analgesia. And, um, and, and many of our patients did choose to use buprenorphine in their choice of how to cease chronic opioid therapy, the full mu agonist chronic opioid therapy. Um, and so it'll be interesting, I think, moving forward to see the different ways in which buprenorphine gets in, in, incorporated into pain control and complex persistent opioid dependence. Um, right now, buprenorphine is mostly used in this country for opioid use disorder. Um, and, um, and there aren't that many formulations where it can be easily adapted for patients who are experiencing chronic non-cancer pain. And so I'm hoping for that to also be um, a, larger, um, a, a larger future use or a larger future potential for, for patients with chronic non-cancer pain. So I think it's a very promising treatment possibility. Great. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. To learn more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.